Yeah, I'm so glad to be with you guys. And I promised um, Brian that I would not move around as much as I normally do. Or I guess sometimes I become one of those like televangelists who like moves among the people. <laughs> you know, I see that hand back there, and I just you know, not that I <laughs> that in any way. But yes, I'm so glad to get to be with you all today in person. I. Uh, thought that the service this morning started at, at 9.30, the first one, so I was really early to this service, <laughs> and some would say a little late to the first one, so, um, but yes, I, I can't believe how long it's been since I've been in this building to the point where Rob was like, do you remember where we are, you know, and I feel like, yeah, that one place in Roanoke, you know, but I kept putting in 104 Roanoke, and that's not it, just in case you there. Um, so I don't know if you are familiar with the liturgical church calendar. Uh, my experience as a commoner has been Advent and Lent. That's kind of the extent of my knowledge. I didn't grow up in a tradition where we recognized a lot of the different seasons in the church calendar, but being a part of a congregation now that uh, practices and recognizes those different times has allowed me to see, oh, this is, this is expanding my view of my tradition and faith and what it means to engage the story of God and God's redemptive work in the world in a new way. So I am a person who understood that Advent was what leads us up to baby Jesus in his swaddling clothes in the manger, and Lent is where we give up things that we like uh, until we get to the cross, you know. And in that limited understanding, I'm beginning to see that these seasons of the church and our faith shape and, and give some structure to our own seasons of life, the way that we breathe in and breathe out the way that there is a time for sowing and a time for harvesting, these different things. But right now, we are in ordinary time, which sounds so exciting. So we are in ordinary time, which makes up the majority of the church calendar. And what I like about it is it also makes up the majority of our lives, right? It's, not that our lives are all about the highs and the lows, the mountaintops or the valleys, but a lot of our lives are just kind of in the in-between space. There's time when babies are born and people die. There's times of graduations and job losses, but a lot of the life is just the mundane moving through, experiencing the normal conflicts, difficulties, and excitement of an average journey, right? So it's good for us to know, then, Jesus in the ordinary time. Instead of just thinking about what do we do when the bottom completely falls out, but how do we engage God when things are just okay? You know, we might be experiencing some discontent or some questions or frustration, and Jesus is present and with us for all of that, not just the times when we feel the most desperate, but recognizing that the person of Jesus, the reality of Jesus being alive, is also what gives us strength and purpose and comfort, guidance and love for other people every single day. So we are in ordinary time right now. And in order to understand then ordinary time, 
we revisit, we look to those times of, of Easter, Lent, when we recognize how we've been created by God and need God in order to live the life we were created to live. And Advent, when we recognize that our world needs a Savior. And then the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. These are the truths that we hold on to in ordinary time. You ever feel like you're just kind of going through the routines, you know, you don't even pay attention to. That's where I felt like I was before quarantine, before COVID. I didn't notice all the just routine going through the motions thing I did until all the motion stopped and the routine stopped. And I realized I hadn't stopped for a while to evaluate my life, what was driving me, my purpose, my connection with God. Just felt like something that was there, whether or not I paid attention to it. And so when we are in ordinary time, it's good for us to remember the truths that can guide <coughs> that ordinary time. Such as Easter, when we have the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And then as Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven, the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? And then Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes, not just to an individual, but to the body of Jesus to the people of God. And that's where I want us to look because that's kind of our last spot, this, this, this Pentecost moment. So going before that to Acts chapter 1, if you are following along with me, where I want us to, to look at this beginning of the story that Luke is telling in his letter to Theophilus. Now Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything that Jesus did and taught from the beginning right up to the day that he was taken up into heaven. Before Jesus was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So as a result, those who were gathered with Jesus asked him, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus replied, it is not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has set. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after Jesus had said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. While he was going away, they were staring toward the heavens, and suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who was taken away from you, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Now, at the beginning, when Theophilus is explaining Jesus coming back and, and these 40 days that he spent with the apostles, I love that he uses the phrase, he convinced them with many proofs that he was alive. Infallible evidences, perfect courtroom explanation. It's this unquestionable demonstration. 
After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. And through the post-resurrection gospel accounts, we could piece together how this infallible evidence may have been presented during those 40 days. They were face-to-face, talking, uh, probably not six feet apart. There was continued instruction, letting Thomas touch the scars, eating together. Turns out after descending into hell, Jesus still eats fish. But what I find most striking, sorry, I'm a vegetarian. That was a, I'm taking a shot at fish. Who is it? All right. Just to check with Rob before saying anything. But what I find most striking about this phrase, convincing proofs, is that initially it seems to stand in contrast to Jesus' normal mode of operation. When we think about the way that Jesus mainly taught, maybe we think of parables, we think of some kind of vague or uh, general way in which Jesus describes the kingdom of God or the presence of evil. Maybe we think of sermons on a mount or a plane, respectively, or acts of healing, maybe these mic-dropping moments with the Pharisees. But rarely do we think of Jesus' teaching associated with convincing proofs. We don't usually think of Jesus trying blatantly to prove anything. Isn't he the one that says he's not going to jump or dance just because his audience wants proof, right? Doesn't he chastise people for demanding proof? Give us a sign. Persuade us. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Yet he's not willing to prove anything on their terms. And this amazed Pilate, remember? You're offering no evidence, no proof against these charges? When Jesus is mocked and spat on, he doesn't try to convince anybody. When he's taunted, and they say to him, prove that you are a prophet and tell us which one hit you. In other words, give us convincing proofs. So why is it now that Jesus is compelled to establish the validity of his life? Why does he spend 40 days bending over backwards, teaching and showing his apostles that he lives with many convincing proofs? Why not just let people who don't believe roll their eyes and walk away? There are plenty of obvious reasons why Jesus being alive would be a sticking point, why it would matter for everything else that happens for the apostles and for us as well, right? Jesus' death alone wasn't enough to save us, and Jesus' resurrection could have been just chalked up to a ghost story, but Jesus alive changes everything. It changes everything. And it was so important that Jesus bent over backwards with many convincing proofs to make clear to us that this is not a past experience but that Jesus being alive, no matter what time we're in, is for ordinary time. So this is in the context then, this is all said before Jesus ascends into heaven, okay? I love when we look at scripture in its broader picture, it helps us understand Jesus giving these convincing proofs before ascending. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going away, and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them and said, Galileans, why 
are you looking toward heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The preposition away, that he was taken away, is not just that he was taken into heaven, it's that he was taken away from the disciples. There's a strong emphasis on the away part. So it wasn't just Jesus has left earth and gone to heaven. Jesus was taken away from the people who knew him and lived with him and loved him. The people to whom Jesus was not just teacher or random prophet guy, but family and savior, okay? Jesus being taken away. Can, can you even imagine when you have relied on this presence? You've already been through quite the dramatic roller coaster of the last 43 days, right? The Jesus that you knew is, is tortured and crucified, and then there's an empty tomb, and then Jesus appears again with all these convincing proofs that he is alive. He was taken away from them again. And now, as they look up into the sky, he's gone. It's like that balloon that you let go, and you can see it for a while, and then you squint and you realize you're looking at sky. You're starting to imagine that maybe that balloon is still there, but pretty sure that it's gone. Gone. And then two guys in white robes appear and act as if they don't know what's going on. They're like, oh, hey. I, I thought for a long time they appeared in the sky. It was actually this morning as I was reading it, I was like, oh, they're standing next to them. So it's kind of like the disciples are like this. And then the two guys walk up and they're like, hey, why are you looking at the sky? Like they just, they're like, are you new here? Are you new to the party? What's going on? I don't, maybe this is blasphemous. Controversial, maybe, okay? <laughs> we'll go for controversial. But do you feel like sometimes the men in white robes who appear are just a little sassy about this? <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of like, so why are you looking into the sky? And then everybody looks at each other like, is this everybody's first ascension? That's why, okay? Because we see this, you know, Luke 24. So why are you looking for Jesus in this empty tomb? Well, because that's where he was, and he's not. Anybody's first resurrection? Okay. So are you gaslighting us with these questions? What, is there an appropriate answer? I'm sorry. Was there a handbook on how to be Jesus' disciples for dummies? There is, and I have it. But it's this, yeah, this is why we're staring, because Jesus was here, and now he's not. And I wonder if for us, not having that experience, but having that experience where Jesus is present and then it feels like he's not, you know? Do we sometimes stare at this guy where we last saw Jesus expecting or thinking we need Jesus to be there in the same way that he was before? I not only need God, but I need to God to show up in a way that I expect and can recognize very easily. Sometimes, like the apostles, we have questions, and we're not quite sure what to do next. I stare at this guy because I'm hoping that God will show up in a way that God has previously. Or I want God to show up in my life and in my issues and my difficulties and my insecurity and my addiction. I want God to show up in the way that God does in movies or in your life or in the healing stories in the Bible. I want it in such a huge, tangible way that I understand and there is no question in that. I want God to meet the expectations I have of how God's presence and power should look in my life. 
We want Jesus to do what we want Jesus to do. We want the truth that Jesus is alive to mean that pain and difficulty magically evaporate. Let's consider for a moment that when challenges or grief, these things that characterize our ordinary time, when these things happen, do we sometimes question if God is with us? Or do we question ourselves? Is it possible that the sky sometimes is just empty? But Jesus is alive. These convincing proofs were not just given at random, but given for everything that the apostles, and we're included in this, everything that's happening from here on out. Convincing proofs were not just offered for the work the disciples would do. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is alive. But it wasn't just that Jesus was convincing them of his continued aliveness for the sake of the work they were going to do, as if they're just workhorses. It was also for what they most needed for their own mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. They needed to know that Jesus was alive. It's safe to say that their last 44 days had been a bit unsettling. And Jesus was aware and not aloof to this, not just like, well, you know, either get on board or go on with yourself. But his ministry being characterized by love for the world was true and direct and explicit to these people who followed him and lived life with him. Jesus' work and his teaching, these convincing proofs, were not convincing proofs for the end of himself. He's not somebody who just has something to prove. When we think about someone who has something to prove, they are desperate for you to see them the way they want to be seen, right? I need you to see me. I want to control the way you see me. But Jesus, with convincing proofs, it wasn't about his desperate need to be seen as alive. It was what the disciples desperately needed. They desperately needed to know that Jesus was alive for everything that would happen next. Jesus, being alive, spoke to the most tired places of their past and also the future hope and work that they would do. And then Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming soon, and they respond by saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this point? Jesus replied, it isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. To me, that sounds more like Jesus than the convincing proofs. And then Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He redirects and, and, and points them to the broader picture. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses everywhere. Jesus doesn't always speak to the questions in the way we want, but always speaks to what we most need and most deeply. What I love about the convincing proofs is that Jesus not only speaks to the deeper places of our hearts, but does so in a way where he takes responsibility for us hearing. So it's easy in times we want, you ever wanted God to speak or give direction or you know, just please show me that you're there. Give me some kind of guidance or comfort. 
And so we try really hard to listen. Okay, if I just sit here and meditate for 20 minutes, maybe I can manipulate God into speaking. i got to convince God that I'm really open to hearing, you know, tell me what to do. Do I need to pray with one foot in the toilet while making waffles? I'll do it. <laughs> and yet with Jesus taking responsibility for showing with these convincing proofs the continued aliveness of, of Jesus, then we can see that we don't have to be anxious about our ability to listen. Because it's not about how good you are at hearing, it's about God's willingness to speak. Absolutely, when we tune in, when we open ourselves up to the work of God, then we see God. But just know, God cares more about this than you do. God takes responsibility for reaching you. The shepherd is far more concerned about the sheep hearing his voice than the sheep are. God wants fullness of life for you because that's who God is. God speaks because that's what God does. It's not about you trying hard or beating yourself up for not being a good enough Christian or listener or follower. You're connected to God because that's who God is. There's those moments where we're staring into the empty sky that we need to remember God's willingness to speak and that we need to remember how alive Jesus still is. Think about it. What in our world is not impacted by the truth of Jesus being alive? What in our world is not affected by the fact that God of love and create creation and strength is still actively in this world? And even though I know that, a lot of things that are happening in our world right now make me think empty sky. Make me think empty sky instead of convincing proofs. Jesus being alive is our theological touchstone. It's the deep truth that brings guidance and comfort and healing. It's what restores us, what gives us purpose and sets the stage. Everything is predicated by the truth that Jesus is alive. When we feel abandoned, when we feel disappointed, when we feel overwhelmed or drowning in anxiety or loss, Jesus is alive. So how can it be that we have empty skies and convincing proofs? Well, the worst thing we can do is act as if the convincing proofs just completely dismiss the empty skies. It's, Jesus being alive is not a pithy statement like a, yeah, I'm really struggling with um, my spouse leaving. You're too blessed to be stressed, right? Or I just lost this job or this family. Hey, when God closes a door, he always opens a window. Jesus is alive is not a statement that dismisses and quiets and shuts down all of our questions and doubts. The truth of Jesus' aliveness actually gives us a landing spot for all of the doubts and concerns questions, moments of, of rage, the falling apart, gives us a place in which we can fall apart. If Jesus is alive, then our relationship with God is still viable, it's still going. The heartbeat of our communion and connection with God is still going strong, despite everything that's happening around us. The creative God who created the universe still creates today. Jesus being alive gives us the confidence to move forward in a life where we don't know the answers. Empty sky and convincing proofs. 
somehow exist in our hearts and in our mind. That's why the disciples needed to know that Jesus was alive as they stared at that empty sky. Because there's something about Jesus being alive that weaves together all the pieces from the past and the words of the, the prophets and the voices of hope and making way for the powerful presence of the Spirit. If Jesus is alive, then what Jesus said is true. And if what he said is true, then the kingdom is real. And if the kingdom of God is real, then forgiveness is real. And if forgiveness is real, then grace is continual and mercies are new every morning. And if that is true, then it doesn't matter what I've experienced or done or seen or said. There is always hope and always restoration and there is always love. And if love is real, then, then height and depth and, and life and death, nothing can separate us from that love. There is no end to a story in which Jesus is alive and for you. If this love is real, if Jesus is alive, then everything that God has said and done up to this point is ours. And no longer is it just that we're experiencing on the outside, but the promise of the Spirit means that this life is not just something we see, but it's something that dwells within us. I don't just experience the love, I have the love for other people. I don't just belong, but I experience what it is to belong to the Creator God. And that changes everything. Sometimes that gives me space when I see an empty sky. When we're in that position of flux, when Jesus, there, Jesus, gone. Really annoying magic trick. I'm really not sure why, if Jesus was ascending into heaven, he's like, okay, it'll be a few days until the Spirit. It feels like it would have been a good time for a like, baton handoff, right? Jesus is like, all right, I'm going. Spirit's like, I got it. And they keep going, and there's no disruption, right? There's not that space or position of flux. The disciples aren't yet again struggling with the unknown. Instead, here they are, again with questions and a period of waiting. But Jesus did give instruction. The instruction was what? Wait. Waiting is the worst. I want for just once to make a doctor wait on me. I'm like, actually, I'm going to be in your office. Why don't you go to the waiting room for 45 minutes? I hope you didn't have anything planned today. But we hate waiting, right? Because it seems like something we just do uh, to get to whatever it is that's important. But waiting is when we most need to remember what Jesus has said. Jesus is alive. That is the discipline. The discipline is not just to wait inactively and annoyed, but instead to let this be a time when the truth of God is real, even when it's hard to believe. The Spirit is coming. Maybe they just focused on the first part of what Jesus said. Uh, I mean, the last part, you know, that you will be my witnesses, but that's not the direction God gave. 
He didn't tell them to be his witnesses. He said that's going to be the result of waiting and then receiving the Spirit. That's the next step. Look at the empty sky. Why are you looking at the sky, the men said. And it pulled them back to the present moment. Because the sky might have been empty, but two people are now there. Jesus is always moving. There's, there's never the blank space that we imagine where there was Jesus in physical form, and now there's empty sky. It has been replaced by hope. What did the men say? This Jesus who was taken from him is going to return in the same way. There's hope, piecing together all these things that were said. Ordinary time is the time when we most need to remember the truth we have already experienced. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is alive. Being the created and loved people of God. Hope. Jesus is alive. And what that means is that it's not just for what happens in the sky but it's also for what's happening today. And it's going to mean different things for us at different times. And it's okay that it's hard to reconcile empty skies with convincing proofs. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That means we're trying to bring together pieces with what our tradition calls faith. But faith is not blind. I think sometimes we're like, oh, it's just, you know, blind faith. Actually, no. You have been given pieces you see. And there's also things you don't see. That's how it is. That's how it is for us that we are people who trust and people who struggle to trust, people who believe, help my unbelief, people of faith, people who love, people who don't love. And we're on this journey to become the people we already are. And that means the constant reconciliation with empty sky and convincing proofs about Jesus' life but remembering in moments of despair that Jesus is alive, and that means circumstances do not have to have the last word. Jesus being alive means that the brokenness and the broken systems and the racism and the oppression and the injustice are not the end of the story. In your place of need and in your insecure moments, in the times where you need to be reminded that you are loved and valued and cared for, Jesus is alive. In the times when you're looking into an empty sky, Jesus is alive. Hope fills the empty space. And as long as Jesus is alive, then story is never over. Ever, ever. Pray with me. God, remind us that we can trust you with all that Jesus is alive. What it means that we have access to the continued presence of the God who is for us. Deepen our trust and our faith and remind us of hope. And that this hope is not built on empty confessions, but on the truth that you are with us, you are present, you are alive, and you are working.
Spirit, minister to us as individuals and as a group. We trust you in the work you will do. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Stand with me. Please. May you see the God who sees you. May you be open to the God who is present. And may you hear the God who will speak. Grace and peace to you.